Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Liberties Podcast. I'm Leon Wieseltier, the editor of Liberties, sitting in for Celeste Marcus, the managing editor of Liberties, who usually hosts our podcast, but today is its guest. I'm here to talk with Celeste about an unusually fascinating essay that she has published, if I dare say so, in the current issue that broaches a book project that she's beginning. The essay is called The Beehive, which is a translation of the French words La Rouche, and it is a very vivid description of an artist's colony, a legendary artist's colony tucked away in a corner of Paris that turned out to be of significance to the history of modern art and of French art and of Jewish art. Um, And I will, Celeste will tell us the story and analyze it. All I will say is that uh, the story has both romantic dimensions and tragic dimensions, and we'll get to those in, I guess, in that order. It would be too much of a bummer to do it the other way. Uh, And we're talking about a small place in the middle of Paris where in their youth, as Celeste will tell us, artists such as Soutine and Chagall and Lipschitz and Zadkin and many others, uh, Leger was associated with it. Um, Well, Celeste, tell tell us what La Rouche was and is and why you chose to write about it. Okay, thank you for that. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, yeah, I think that you, you know, you painted a pretty good sort of sketch of what La Rouche became. Um, but I do want to talk about its origin story because it's kind of, it's like insane the way that so much of what went on inside and around La Rouge and the rumors that burbled about it, um, were kind of otherworldly, uh, and it's an exciting tale. So I'll, yes. I'll start, um, story starts in 1900, which was mm-hmm. actually, it was two years before La Rouge was officially built, but it starts with the World Fair of 1900, which oh. was... Um, yeah, so it's an interesting story, kind of weird, uh, like so much of the stories about it. And it's, so the World Fair of 1900 was a huge international fair. And it was an opportunity for Paris to show again, to assert its um, primary position as the cultural epicenter of the globe. Uh, and it, they spent over 10 years preparing for it. Um, the Grand Palais and the Petit Palais were built for the World Fair, actually, um, which sounds kind of insane. And like you get, you get a sense of the scope. This is the scale on which we're, that we're talking about. The Eiffel Tower had been built actually in um, 1889 for the mm-hmm. previous World Fair. So this was how big these kinds of things were. We don't really have things like this anymore, but they would build like entire structures that would go on to redefine the city itself. I guess Um, the closest thing we have are Olympic villages. Yeah, but don't they all get taken down after? Some do, some don't, but they they, they sometimes leave the city changed. But go ahead. Okay, interesting. I didn't have that in my mind. Thank you for that. Um, Okay, so the, the 1900 World Fair was like this. 
Um, and it was like many acres long and they built all kinds of buildings for it. I already mentioned two of them. They also built all of the, like the Metro entrances that you see in Paris, which Mm -hmm. are, have become sort of iconic. Those were built for the 1900 world fair. The art deco ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can picture them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, okay. There was also a wine rotunda that was designed by Gustav Eiffel, who is the same architect of the Eiffel Tower, uh, Mm -hmm. which would be absolutely no historical significance, except that after the fair was over, Alfred Boucher, who was a very successful sculptor, um, wealthy, he was a a wealthy artist, so there Mm -hmm. there were some of those. Um, He was friends with Rodin, he was Camille Claudel's uh, teacher before he gave her to Rodin. Um, but he went to the auctions that they were auctioning off all of the structures that they didn't want to demolish, but didn't want to just leave up after mm-hmm. the fair was over. They auctioned off and Boucher bought a bunch of them. He mm. bought the, this wine rotunda and he bought um, these enormous wrought iron gates, which were part of the women's pavilion. Mm-hmm. And he bought these beautiful caryatids mm-hmm. from the Indochina Pavilion and a hodgepodge of other things. Mm-hmm. And he and his nephew moved all of them from the fairgrounds to uh, the 15th arrondissement, right on the outer edge of Montparnasse. It's really not in Montparnasse. Mm-hmm. But, so it's on um, Passage Danzig in, in the 15th arrondissement. And they, call, they just established an art, artist colony. Really, Boucher did it. They started and with, the, they, you mean they transformed the wine pavilion at first? That's right, yeah, yeah, They just took all these all these structures, this hodgepodge of different buildings and, like, these leftover bits and pieces of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the wine rotunda, it, like, you, it is the size of a building. It was, mm-hmm. it was a three, it's a three-story structure. It's octagonal, um, which uh-huh. is why it, they started calling it the beehive, which is actually uh-huh. hexagonal and not octagonal, but whatever. Um, and so the... That serves as the main structure of what then became La Rouche, which mm-hmm. he didn't call it that. He called it the Villa Medici. Um, oh, he did, yes. But he was the only one that did that. Well, it's, <laughs> it a, very, a, it's a very flattering name for him, yes. Yes, exa- exactly, right. So that that's actually, you know, interesting just to understand what he, what he thought he was doing. Yeah. Um, and he sort of considered himself... Correctly, he considered himself the patron, a sort of father figure to mm-hmm. the literally hundreds of artists who got mm-hmm. their start at La Rouche. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that you gave some of the names of like the really famous ones who made it out of La Rouche, but the reason that there were so many people there is because Boucher did not, he, he went really easy on the artists. He knew what it was like to be a starving artist. And so he never um, stamped his feet about rent. Mm. Um, basically, if you were there and you couldn't pay, he turned a blind eye to it. Uh, he was happy to just have everybody in there working. Um, and, you know, there are lots of stories about LaRouche and a lot of mythology about the figures who, um, who lived there and who frequented LaRouche. Uh, and have you, you have of, you been there, Celeste? Yeah, I have been there. Yes. Oh. Yes. Not, not legally, but yeah, I, I like, I slipped in. You slipped um, in. I and slipped in. what does it look like? I mean, it's. So now it's, you could walk right by and you'd never know what it was. Um, when Boucher built it, it was next to enormous fields where there are actually slaughterhouses that oh. 
Chagall painted the cows who were in the slaughterhouses there. Now there's nothing, there's, there's like no expanse of land anywhere. It's very claustrophobic. The buildings mm-hmm. have encroached right up against the outer walls of mm-hmm. the main center of La Rouche. Um, but when you get inside, so there's still those enormous wrought iron gates from the women's pavilion, but there's a tiny gate off to the side. And I, I had like followed someone in when they were opening the door and just happened right. to be, I, I did go back several times. This didn't happen the first time. So it's not like I can pretend like it was fate, but you know, you make your own luck. Um, and once you get inside the actual grounds, it's, it's like a different world. It was, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I get chills just like remembering it because it feels exactly like <laughs> it feels like I would imagine it felt when they all lived there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it's not uh, as obviously decrepit and impoverished as it must have been when, you know, the doors opened in 1902 and all of these indigenous artists kind of spilled into it. Yeah. Um, but it's still an operative artist colony. They have fellows there. Yeah. Uh, fewer now because of the pandemic. I think that it really got at least sliced in half yeah. um, because of the plague, but still operative and gorgeous. And you can see yeah. there's some of the, <laughs> I sound like a like a spy or a stalker, but you can see through some of the windows and the studios are really gorgeous. I mean, I am envious of that kind of that kind of expansive space to paint and, and sculpt in. Um, I remember I, I visited it once, and it came, oh. had the aspect to me of a kind of magical garden tucked away in the middle of Paris. It was yeah, it feels like that. And there were paths, and the paths led to adjacent buildings from which there were paths and there were sculptures strewn all along the paths. And it was, it was a genuinely enchanted place. It feels like a fairy tale. And I I mean, you know, it's very easy to romanticize this period. And, um, you know, you mentioned that, um, this is the beginning of a book for me. The essay is an or chapter of a book that I am now writing. And that, that book is about the artist Chaim Soutine, who, as you mentioned, did live there. And one of the things that you have to be careful about when you're doing this research is that there's just so much mythologizing. And so I don't want to act as if it was, um, not difficult. You know, if the artists were there, they were making personal sacrifices in the name of art. There was nobody who lived there who wasn't doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, like even Chagall, who is probably the most famous of all the people who have ever lived there, uh, which is difficult for me to say because of Soutine, but I, you know, it's true. Um, he was, he was already pretty wealthy by the time he got to La Rouge because in Vitebsk, he was a great success. Mm-hmm. Um, Vitebsk is the, is the town that he comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, Which was in, an, an, an art center of its own. Yeah, yeah. And he, yes, exactly. So, you know, he comes from Vitebsk, which was in Eastern Europe. Um, Soutine also comes from a small town, which was in Eastern Europe called Smilovici. And sometimes the people who write about... In, Be- in Belarus, right? In It's present day Belarus. It was I Russia see. when it he was, was born Russia. on it. Okay. And that's what it said on his, you know, on his identification cards. Yeah. It said Russian and he spoke Russian. Yeah. Um, and actually now there's... Soutine is a, is a big deal, particularly in Paris and when he became famous afterwards, it's kind of interesting to see all the subcultures that he really abandoned, but that all tried to claim him, um, the Jews among them. But anyway, the point that I wanted to make about comparing Chagall and Soutine is that if you don't know anything about Vitebsk or Smilovici, as some of the people who write just cursorily about La Rouche, you know, who aren't digging deep into 
Jewish history or any yeah. other kind, um, they think of them as the same kind of place. And they really yeah. were not the same. Right. Um, although both of them, when they first moved to Paris and they first lived at La Rouche, they hadn't made it yet. Right. Chagall right. was still you know, farther along than Soutin was. But even he, if you were at La Rouge, it was because you could not afford to be anywhere else. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, they, you kind of plot the artist's progress by when they were able to afford to move out and buy their uh-huh. own studio. So um, in, in La Rouge, La Rouge basically was a warren of artist studios, right? There were, exactly. and, um, did an artist lived there and worked there. Yeah, and there were some people who just rented studio space, but a lot of them lived there. Um, and, you know, there were people from many, there, there were artists from Italy. There was one, there was an artist from Japan. But most of the artists who lived there were from Eastern Europe, and a lot of the ones who were from Eastern Europe were Jewish. Uh, not everybody, not everybody, but yes. There were, if you stood on the ground floor, it's, you know, it's three stories, yeah. and you stood, like, at the base of the stairs, you could hear people arguing about Cezanne and Rembrandt and Cubism in like every language imaginable. Including um, Yiddish. Exactly, yes, including Yiddish. Or, or prominently Yiddish. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I like to think so. I hope so. Yeah, Probably yeah. maybe more Russian than Yiddish, but uh-huh. certainly Yiddish also. I don't know if Soutine spoke uh, Yiddish. Doing my best. Um, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I understand the impulse. I, I yeah. do too. And, um, so you had this was a kind of colony in the heart of town of poor but very very devoted and consecrated painters and sculptors. It, it's not the heart of town, and I'm only saying that because I want I want to emphasize uh, yeah. that this was its own place. And so the the heart of town, where if you became you know a member of the School of Paris, who was you know, a known figure, you would be at La Rotonde or, um, or at La, De, La Dome, which Wait, was, those are cafes. Those are cafes, 40 minutes walk from La Rouge. So not the heart of town. Uh, I oh, mean, La Rouge right, is not the heart of Montparnasse, town. Montparnasse, right. But I mean, it wasn't outside the city. I mean, Montparnasse. It, it wasn't outside the city. But what I'm trying to say is that if, you know, there was the school of Paris um, and there was a heart of town and then there was La Rouge, which was a, a bit of a walk away from that. Yeah. Um, and if you were there, it was because you were part of a particular group. And if you got out of there and you moved past it, it was still a place that you would associate your earliest memories of the city with. Um, and it's also, I'm proud. I know that Apollinaire visited um, the studios at La Rouge. Uh-huh. He did. He had to walk forty minutes to get there. Yeah. You know that that's yeah. something I'm. I, I'm. I have pride in that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, yeah. as an honorary member of the team. Yes. Um, but yes, and as soon as as soon as Boucher bought the place and the doors opened, word traveled very very quickly. And as long as he was there presiding, which was several decades, um, he bought up shacks and huts and like little little buildings all around La Rouge until there were like 400 studios Wow! Um, because there was such high demand for it yeah. yeah and he also and I love this and it's something that it was just so exciting to discover um so he wanted to like he wanted to do a favor for the artists and also he knew that the shopkeepers and the restaurant owners around La Rouge who were constantly feeding his poor artists who could not often could not afford to pay them. Um, He knew that they were doing a lot of charity work for his people. And so he opened a theater like La Rouge theater. um, 
And initially, you know, everyone was very excited about this. I think he got some money from the government for it. And then he had the brilliant idea of allowing up and coming directors and and actors to run the shows there. And that is where Louis Jouvet got his start, which oh, wow. I'm so delighted by that fact. And I hope that we should you know, tell I want everyone listeners. to know about that. We should tell our listeners that Louis Jouvet was an extraordinary French theater and film actor of the early 20th century. Yes. First half of the 20th century, yes. Right. Uh, yeah. Very yeah. dreamy. So yeah. it was a hive of painting and sculpting. Tell us a little bit about the painting that was going on in 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 the beehive. So I've used the term School of Paris, and La Roche is associated with the School of Paris, and what that term refers to um, is the swarm of immigrant artists who surged into Paris in the first half of the 20th century. Uh-huh. And it, so it's an, it can be a bit of a misleading appellation because it's a, Often, if you refer to a group of artists or writers or, um, you know, etc., as a school, you you might be indicating that they have a certain ideological or stylistic predisposition. Mm-hmm. That was not the case with the School of Paris. They all painted very differently. It's not like you could look at the, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like the Cubists. Cubists right, it wasn't Cubism, a mov- it wasn't a movement. Yeah. It was not a movement. It was not a self conscious movement, and mm-hmm. they weren't choosing to. Per- they weren't trying to like figure something out together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know the way that. Mm-hmm. Picasso and Grewer. Um, although many of them were inspired by Picasso and, and like mm-hmm. eventually you can look at the paintings and you can tell who they were looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, Cezanne towers over them and his shadow was, was long and dark. And a lot of them, a lot of them, especially in the beginnings. And actually, you know, there are some really early Soutines that were discovered recently that are kind of, you can see that he hadn't gotten through, he hadn't gotten past Cezanne yet. Um, they, you know, they tried to work through him, but they weren't, they were teaching themselves how to paint. Um, mm-hmm. and these were, there, these were some of the influences that they had in common. Um, Matisse was a huge role mm-hmm. model and he was actually their teacher. Cezanne was not their teacher. Um, but mm-hmm. Matisse, right. Matisse literally taught some of the people who lived at La Rouge and around oh, it, oh, oh. um, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, yes. Now tell us about. Tell us about your man, about Chaim Soutine. When did Soutine arrive at La Rouche? He moved in in I think it's nineteen thirteen or nineteen twelve. Uh huh. Um, and he came. He came alone or with comrades or. He came. He and Kikoin came together. He and um, you have uh, Kikoin. Kikoin yes. being. Oh, I'm sorry. He was an artist who was also from, I think he was from Smilovici, uh-huh. although some people say, so Soutine, all right, I'll start at the beginning. What we know about Soutine's childhood is that it was very unhappy. Um, and there is always the myth when it comes to the Jewish artist that he is you know, spurned by his Jewish uh, comrades because he is painting and there is a prohibition against graven images which is a terrible translation but you know you can't draw people right um and so when he was a teenager and this is all so apocryphal that i don't i i'm only telling you what is often repeated um and probably true because this i think is true um when he was a young when he was young he was beaten up all the time his brother he was the 11th of 12 children um 
and he he was drawing all the time. He would use sticks to draw in the mud when he couldn't find anything else. And they, mm-hmm. they really did. This is actually true in his case. He really was tormented for it. Um, and one day he asked an old man who he's usually called a rabbi in the Sutiniana. And I think that that, I, I don't know if they just mean that. Well, he that's was a because Jew. they think that he was in Anatevka. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like don't know really what that means. Yeah. But anyway, he drew, he asked an elderly Jew to sit for a portrait. And this, this elderly Jew's son found out about this and he and his buddies beat Soutine to a pulp and he couldn't walk for a week. Well. And his mother, who is sort of the benign character in his family history, although she didn't have much time for him, um, she sued the city. And she got some reward for mm-hmm. for, for the beating. And some compensation, that, you mean, yeah. I'm sorry, yes, some compensation, not a reward. Um, and with that money, Sutin was able to afford to leave Smilovici and go to Minsk, which was the closest big city. Mm-hmm. And and he would have heard of he would have heard mm-hmm. of Minsk from Smilovici, mm-hmm. whereas I, I don't think he would have heard of Paris from Smilovici. Right, right. Um, and so some say that Kikoin came with him from Smilovici to Minsk. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they say that they met in Minsk. Um, mm-hmm. They certainly studied together in Minsk, and then when they completed the th- like three years' worth of education there, they left. I'm sorry, so I should also say that Sutin, we know, was born in 1893. Mm-hmm. Okay, 1893. And he left in, like, um, you know, the early, uh, like, 1910-ish. Um, <coughs> Excuse me, yeah. Okay, so he leave, He and Kikoyan go from Minsk to Vilna. In Vilna, they meet Cremain, who had heard of LaRouche. Who is Cremain? Um, Cremain is another artist who they would have studied with at the academy in, in Vilna. And um, he, Also a Jew from a small town? Yes, also a, also a Jew, also from Eastern Europe. Like mm-hmm. wouldn't, wouldn't have been in Vilna unless he was from mm-hmm. a, I don't know which town, but yes. Okay. Okay. So he go. He meets them, and they spend some time together in Vilna, and then he leaves first and goes to Paris and goes to La Rouche, which I assume is how Kikoin and Soutine knew about La Rouche. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come. They come a year later. So it's really then the beginning of the story. It's a kind of a pilgrimage story. Exactly. It's a pilgrimage story. And they would have been, you know, in the mythology about all of these artists, many of the biographies begin with, like, the dramatic statement that the only French that X artist knew when he got off the train in Paris was, like, to ask the address for La Rouche. Yeah. That was all they knew how to say. Um, and yeah. I even believe it. I mean, I think yeah. it, it could be true for all yeah, of them. Yeah. I mean, none of them had opportunity to learn French before yeah. they got there. Um so, yes, Soutine comes and he goes to La Rouche, and he, unlike some of the other artists who, n- none of them were wealthy, as I said several times already, um, but some of them did have money from their families, who would, they would send them money in the mail. Soutine had none of that. So he was always at the lowest rung, the poorest, could barely afford food. He had terrible stomach problems, probably because he could not afford to feed himself properly. Um, he was on the ground floor at La Rouche, which was the dirtiest, like mangy dog slept in the same mm-hmm. rooms as he did. Um, there's this story, which I don't know if it's true or not, is that he 
there was an abscess in his ear, which turned out to be a nest of bed bugs that had just no. like been taking up residence in his ear, yeah. um, which is gross. But they also, everybody knew about Soutine early. And he, he is like this curmudgeonly awkward guy, uh, did not have great people skills. But everybody knew that he was a genius, even the ones who didn't like him. And a lot of them didn't like him. Um, and he's, t- he's spoken about that way. Uh, you know, people uh-huh. who were not friends with him lied and said they were because they knew that he was going places and they tell were excited us, tell about us, that. Tell us about the kind of painting he was doing when he was at LaRouche. I mean, this would be the the first period of Soutine's career. Yeah. So this is like the, there is an early period that people usually they're talking about when they begin talking about Soutine's career. And they, they mean Soray, which is after LaRouche. So usually people even like just skip the ones that he did in Paris before 1919. But and where, they do is, exist. where is Soray? Soray is a town outside. It's a it's a town outside of Paris. Okay. Um, that he would have. I'll get there. Um, he would have gotten there later, like many several years later, when he had uh, an agent and could have right. and was getting some money. Um, and Soray is also an important city for other reasons. It was there. It was important for the Cubists. Uh, Picasso uh-huh. and Gris went there a few years before Soutine did, and that is where they they did their first Cubist paintings. Uh-huh. Um, so something in the air over there. But yeah. before he gets before he gets to Soray, and he's really developed his own style. You can see that he's. There are still lives that you look at, and they look they look exactly like early saisons. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the really thick paint with you know big black lines. Um, that's the kind of thing that he was doing early, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, listeners, if you haven't seen Soutine's, just, just do me a favor and Google them. So you have an image in your mind of what people mean when they talk about Soutine and you'll understand how different it is from what I'm describing now. There's even a painting that he did in like 19, 1918, um, which is exact. It, it was like, he was just copying Modigliani, which is mm-hmm. so funny. I mean, the woman that he paints is holding a cat, like in, you know, the typical elongated torso right. and has black eyes the way that um, two painters who could not be more different, even though they were friends. Exactly. They were friends could not be more different, even though they were friends. And I've got to tell you, Soutine would not have made it without Modigliani. And that's another mm-hmm. thing about mm-hmm. life at La Rouge that I really want to emphasize. And that I find, I think is kind of one of the most beautiful things about it is like, if you were that poor, um, if you made it, it was because your brothers were looking out for you mm-hmm. and it, well, they were mostly men. There were some women, but mm-hmm. they were mostly men mm-hmm. because they all relied on each other. If, if somebody knew that there was a big deal happening, that some, that some collector was buying up a bunch of paintings, it was their, it was their responsibility to tell their friends about it. And they knew, uh, which restaurants the owner got to late after the early morning bread delivery so that they could go and steal some rolls before he got there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, another really gorgeous example of this spirit, this generous and, and this community spirit. spirit, it's a communitarian spirit. Yeah, exactly. It's it. And it's gorgeous because they had so little, but they shared Mm -hmm. what they had. Um, so one example that I love is there was this Russian woman who's very gifted. Uh, she studied at the Matisse Academy, which remind me to say what that is because it's a funny little episode. Um, and she exhibited the Salon d'Automne, which was a, it was a salon that you had, there was a jury for it. And like mm-hmm. the, there were other, there were other salons that, you know, they showed everybody, but you had to yeah. get into the Salon d'Automne. So was, she was good. She was a, she was a good painter and respected during world war one, when the money that was already pretty meager really dried up and the artists were 
starving. Um, she opened, her name was Maria Vasiliev. She opened something called Vasiliev Tavern, which was just a room with like two burners and a sink. And in that room, she and a cook fed, you know, 50 artists a night mm-hmm. and they would pay almost nothing. And you knew that if, if it was a bad week and you had nowhere else that you could get any food, she would make sure that you got food. Mm-hmm. And this is a woman, this is a woman from Russia. She didn't come from means and she created, she had these huge parties during the war. Um, she would put like colored paper over the lights to like change the, have some mood lighting. Um, it must've been so much fun. And, and well, in a dark of, way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, no, but you're right. You're right. It, the camaraderie, the feeling of solidarity must've been extraordinary. And I also think there was a commitment to joy, which, yeah. you know, that that's a principle. You have to really work for that, especially if there are many reasons to be miserable. Um, and also, are, if, if you look at the paintings that were done in LaRouche, and I've looked at a c- considerable number of them, they are not despondent paintings. Not all of them. Some of them are. I mean, yeah. that, but, but not all of them. You're, you're exactly right. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, creativity and risk. Um, oh, bright color and you know I, I, there's a lot of um a lot of joy in reality yeah yeah actually there's a funny okay now i'm going to tell the funny story about the matisse academy and i'll just explain a little bit just because you said that thing about color so i'm just going to take the opportunity so in 1908 um this is what happened matisse found an abandoned convent um, which was gorgeous. It was white. The, there were huge windows, it was really perfect natural light studios need natural light to paint in. You got to have mm-hmm. natural lighting. Um, and he decided that he was going to set up his studio there. And just like this gaggle of uh, admirers who loved his painting and just desperately wanted his instruction followed him. Maria Vasiliev was one of them. Rudolf Levy, who became an important painter, although he was killed and none of his paintings survived. Um, he was in, he was in the class as well. And they all just followed him and they said, we'll stay in this room. We're not going to bother you. Please just come in every few hours and give us some instruction. And, um, and he did it. And for, for two years until 1910 and then, and then actually Rudolf Levy took over as the head of the Matisse Academy, um, because Matisse had had enough. But Mm -hmm. the story that I think is funny that I was reminded of is that he, um, Matisse came in the first day and he saw that all of the artists were using his colors, like Phobos colors, these hot pinks and reds and really bright colors that were not natural. Um, and he, he got upset and he said, no, 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 you can't just skip to painting that way. You have to go through the, you have to learn how to paint what you see before you can use your imagination. And he took a bust that was like on a, on a table in the, by the side of the room and he put it in the middle of the circle of the artist and he said, you draw this mm-hmm. the way you see it. I'm going to leave and I'm not going to come back until you can show me that. Hmm. Um, so that's just mm-hmm. kind of an interesting, yeah. I, I think that that's cool. Um, I mean, one of the things I've noticed in recent years is that I get all these emails from all these auction houses and auction sites, not the not the huge auction houses, which, you know, sell the works for hundreds of millions of dollars and the Times likes to report about as financial porn. But yeah. um, but smaller galleries where a great deal of really good painting and drawing and sculpture can still be had. And in recent years, more there's been more and more interest in the artists who painted in LaRouche. 
Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah. a few years ago at Bonhams, which isn't it's a significant auction house, there was an auction dedicated just to the yes. artists of the School of Paris. It was yes. when it was that was actually the first time that I'd heard of them. Mm-hmm. And, and I was very moved by a painting by an artist named Jacques Shapiro yes. that I copied because it was so haunting and I thought it was very beautiful. Um, yes. And Jacques Shapiro was actually the only one we know of who wrote a memoir of La Rue. She lived there yeah. for a long time. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so that was mm-hmm. really exciting. But you're, you're absolutely right. You can get some of these paintings. You, and you can long. see them. I mean, they're in private collections mainly or in... Yeah very, very provincial museums in various places. but There are a lot in Israel. That's yeah. well. We'll get to that, yeah. So yeah. tell us, um, before, we get to the, 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 before we get to the gathering storm over LaRouche, um, right. when Soutine was at LaRouche, when did Soutine begin to paint like Soutine, if you know what I mean? So the Soutine you, that we know, the one that... Yeah. If you ask Soutine that question, he would tell you that he started painting like as we, he would skip Soray, which was mm-hmm. 1919 to 1921, 22, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, and he would say that it started in, at Kanya in 1925, mm-hmm. four or five. Um, but, but really like the Soutine, Soutines that particularly Americans know about, um, they were painted in Soray. There are these ve- very dark, um, almost suffocating paintings, which he really evolved beyond that. I, mm-hmm. I, if if you are lucky enough to see paintings that he painted in the late 30s and early 40s, and he died in 1943 mm-hmm. uh, at the age of 50, which is tragic. Yeah. Um, they, the air opens up. There's much more oxygen in his later paintings, much mm-hmm. more light. Um, mm-hmm. But but in the early ones, you know, they're. Uh, people describe them as tortured because um, they, yes. they're very, some of them are very dark. Some of them are quite brutal. He painted they think a lot he's of an animals. expressionist painter. Yeah, they do. And I just, I think that that's a lazy description. Um, mm-hmm. I understand the impulse, but I think it's, I think it's incomplete. Um, so Saray is the period he was extraordinarily prolific. Um, he, he, all he did was paint and he was miserable. Okay. So I, I have to also back up a little bit and just yes. say, he met Modi, which is what everybody called Modigliani, when he moved out of La Rouge and into Cité Folguère, um, and they became friends in, like, 19... 19- the Cité Folguère being studios not far, too far away from La Rouge. Yes, and he could... Not very expensive, so just, like, a half step up from La Rouge. Um, but he... And actually, I don't think he even could afford his own studio. I think he moved in with Lipschitz. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and Lipschitz introduced him to Modi, and that he would like go back and forth between their two yeah. studios. Um, Modi loved Soutine, mm-hmm. and he loved him. I'm not exaggerating this. I know that this is true. This is not mm-hmm. just something that people say. And the reason that we know this is because Borovsky, who was Modi's agent, hated Soutine. His wife also hated Soutine. Mm-hmm. Um, and Modi had to like twist his arm to get him to take on Soutine. And there was a benefactor who was paying... He was paying through through Zborowski. He was paying Modi like a stipend every month. He would give him a certain amount of money to so that he had first bid on any of Modi's paintings. And he got Modi convinced Zborowski to give Soutine a cut of that of that stipend. Yes, Zborowski was also one of the legendary figures of this group. 
yes, he was he was a champion of Modi, probably what he's best known for, and also of Soutine. Um, and he was a Jew, and uh, he was also he also championed other um, members mm-hmm. of the School of Paris. But the important thing to know about about Swarovski, just in terms of the Soutine story, is that he would never have gotten to him if not for Modi. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was such an act of charity that Modi did this for Soutine. Mm-hmm. Um, because he didn't have to. Soutine was not selling well. He didn't, he had no, like, he, Modi was this, like, dashing, um, gorgeous, almost Dickensian picture of grace and gentility. And he would, he would, like, constantly quote Dante um, and strip, like, in public all the time. This is what he was known for. Um, yeah. The life also, of the party. The life of the party. Everyone loved him. And he, Soutine would just, like, follow him around. Yeah. And he let yeah. him do it. And the reason that he let him do it is because he was convinced of Soutine's genius. Yeah. Um, and this is this is maybe true and maybe not, but the, the tale goes that on his deathbed, and Modi died in 1919, so the friendship wasn't long. It was very deep, but not long. He said to Swarovski, I leave you a genius. I leave you Chaim Soutine. Oh. Um, and you know, if it's not true, it was, if it's not true yeah. that he said it, it was true that he left him a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So and, that, so, and you once told me that it was Borowski who got Soutine to go to Saray. Is that right? So the rumor is that Borowski's wife hated him so much that he, she said, <laughs> just get him out of here, get him out of here. I cannot. So it's funny. She hated having him. He was always coming in and out of the house because of Modi. And so Modi, to mock her, painted a portrait of Soutine on their door, on the Swarovski door. <laughs> she would always see him. So she would always see him. And so that was kind of a, that was a kind of crazy thing that he would do. Yeah. Like rascal. Um, yeah. But so she said, get him out of here. And it was true that Swarovski knew that it sometimes did help artists to get them away from the city and to get the, a change of yeah scenery because it would elicit different colors right um, and, and you know it would just it could jumpstart yeah. new faces in an artist's career and it certainly did that for Soutine uh-huh. he was miserable um, and he would forget to feed himself and he was in a small shack yeah. Swarovski came to visit him and he found him in the shack with all the windows closed and the doors closed because he was afraid that the air would would corrupt the paintings yeah. um, and he went to go get Soutine Soutine food and when he came back there had been a stack of like 400 canvases that Soutine had painted and then just thrown together and he had lit the stack on fire Soutine would do this he would destroy paintings that he was not happy with um so he was kind of a nutball and uh Swarovski you know did his best to save the ones he could and it's good that he did because in 1923 um Albert Barnes, who was an important collector in Philadelphia, and his museum is still open in the city, um, came this is to the Paris. Barnes collection, yes. Correct. Um, he came to Paris, and he happened to see a Soutine painting and asked to be taken to the agent of whoever owned that, whoever represented the artist who had painted that. Um, and he was taken to Zborowski's uh, atelier or wherever, maybe his house. And uh, he came in and he bought, he spent two days looking over the Soutine paintings and he bought 52, which is a, an enormous acquisition. 52, that's the number So lightning struck for Soutine. And it changed his, it changed his life. That was, that was career changing for him. It was the first, first big success. The first time in his life he had money. He became overnight a sensation in a certain part of Paris. It was the part of Paris that he knew and lived in. Um, and he could afford 
he could afford things now. He could afford new clothes. Apparently, he he dressed like a dandy because he was so excited to be mm-hmm. able to to clothe himself and to show off his own wealth that he had really he had gotten by his own hand. Yeah. Um. This was the first time that Sutin was able to had a success that was on his own terms. Modi well, but I guess for a for few, if you're a poor starving artist for so long, he was living the dream. Someone came along and bought bought all his pictures. Yeah, I mean, what's disappointing about, maybe the most heartbreaking thing about the Soutine story is that when he could afford um, a different lifestyle, he abandoned all of his Jewish friends. Yeah, yeah. And that was not true of a lot of the other artists. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was true of him, which is really, really depressing. Yeah. There's, so Barnes demanded to meet the artist who had produced these paintings, and somebody ran out to go get Soutine, and he was sitting with a bunch of other Jews on a bench starving, wishing they had some like a you know crust of bread. Yeah. Um, and some the rumor is that somebody ran up to him and said, "You have to go. This Barnes is about to buy all of the whole bunch of paintings, and this is going to be amazing for you." And he promised the Jews on the bench that if Barnes bought his work, he would make sure that they bought he bought some of the, the other artists' uh-huh. work too. And they say that he was so embarrassed and ashamed that he didn't do that that he spent the rest of his life avoiding them. Oh, I see. Um, I see. Which I even think is a charitable interpretation. I don't think that I, yeah. I think he was just happy to forget everything about his former life. I see. I see. Um, and the, yeah. and as a consequence of, correct me if I'm wrong, but because all of these pictures went into the Barnes collection, where everybody sees them, uh, most people's idea of Soutine um, derive derives from what they see at the barns when in fact there were whole other periods in his painterly life, most of which are tucked away in private collections that nobody sees. Is that right? That is so right. The only, the only small note I would make is that 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 is the picture of Soutine in America. Yeah. uh, America. Um, Right. Right. In America. And absolute, that is absolutely true. Uh, people think of Soutine, they think of the Barnes collection, particularly in America. There are two enormous collections of Soutines. The the Barnes has, has deaccessioned. So Barnes wanted to make Soutine a success. He met Soutine. I told you that he was he was brought to him um, and presented to him. He did not like him because Soutine was not likable. Um, he was filthy and he mm-hmm. didn't speak French well and he was he did not a fawn and say thank you. And actually, apparently, he went the rest of his life without ever mentioning Barnes or expressing any kind no, of gratitude. No, he doesn't seem like he was completely socialized. There's something there's something going on there. Yeah. You know, I'm almost yeah. proud to be writing a biography yeah. of a person who, uh, like, interpersonally, I would not have liked, but uh, yeah. his painting, he was a genius, and I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Um, so, and he really does test me because he banned the Jews, and that, yeah. that, you know, it was it was not what I was hoping to find out. Well, we'll get but, to that period in a moment, yeah. But um, yeah, so there there are twenty one paintings at the barns, Soutine paintings at the barns, and 22 at the Orangerie, oh. which is in Paris. And yeah. the ones at the Orangerie are from the later period. Um, they were they were part of the private collection of, oh God, his name just fell out. Well, but, but they Guillaume, are... Guillaume, the collector Guillaume. Uh-huh. He had a whole bunch of them. And um, they are distinctly different. Very different. And if you look at the ones at the barns and you look at the ones at the Orangerie, you get a sense of how much mm-hmm. he developed beyond the stuff that he was doing in, at mm-hmm. Surrey. And Soutine didn't like the paintings that he was doing at Surrey. When he, I told you that he would destroy his paintings, but what I hadn't mm-hmm. told you is that 
after he had means, he would go around to galleries and private uh, private collections, the owners of private collections, and pay them to buy back his Saray paintings so that he could burn them and pour gasoline on them or cut oh. them up into pieces. He did not want to be known for that period, mm-hmm. um, but he never quite shook it off. Right. Um, right. And I think right. also... I, I, but I think, I think we should add, I guess, that because it's because of the Barnes and because that's what's known of him in America, that is the Soutine who became very important for certain New York painters in the 40s and 50s, especially so, de Kooning. All right. Well, here's what I want to say about, about de Kooning's Soutine. I don't know if, I don't know if, well, let's put it this way. I think that you're right that the Barnes had an enormous influence in the American conception of Soutine, but I think something else that had, if if not as if not more influence than just as much, was um, Clem Green Clement Greenberg's essay, his review of mm. the Soutine retrospective at MoMA mm-hmm. um, in '59. 1950, I think. Was it '50? Was it just? The Monroe Wheeler show, right? Precisely, yeah. Yeah, the 1950. You're right, you're right. It was 1950-51. You're right, I'm sorry. So 1951. 1950-51. It was a really important retrospective, and they did have paintings that were all the way up to 43. Mm -hmm. Um, And Greenberg's review of that show um, really cemented an image of Soutine, which... I will try to argue against in the book. I ho- I think it's wrong. But what he mm-hmm. said was that the most Soutini, the Soutiniest Soutine, the real Soutine is the asocialized, suffocating, um, oxygenless paintings that were the early ones, the ones in Saray. They're really messy. Um, the, go- the gobs of color. Gobs of color, really impasto and yeah. yeah. Um, and that's real Soutine. And then as he got older, Basically, he what he what he says, and I think it's actually an interesting. It, it, it evinces a certain understanding of the way that artists actually work with paint. What he says is that Soutine Soutine was battling with the paint in the early paintings, whereas he achieved some degree of mastery over mm-hmm. it over, as the years went on, and so mm-hmm. that struggle over the medium, mm-hmm. um, as it diminished, the paintings became less interesting. Um, this is absolutely wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. I cannot understand how somebody, I mean, Greenberg, we know was a bully, but he was not an idiot. Uh, mm-hmm. He was very smart. And I can't understand. I wish, I, I wish I, I knew what happened to him in that room when he went to go see that retrospective at MoMA, because I know the paintings that were there. I even like, he gives an mm-hmm. example of his favorite Soutine painting, which is a painting from the late thirties. It's a landscape of a house. Mm-hmm. And he says, this is like the best example of a Soutine painting. It's well organized. It, it is it is decorative, which is a high, it, it, that's praise for Greenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he says, but it was, it is, it is also an example of his decay because Soutine was becoming weaker, which is why it is decorative, it is decorative and, and organized, but it is not really Soutine. Um, and this is just completely wrong. I mean, if you see paintings from mm-hmm. a late period, his genius is just at full force. And mm-hmm. he's, I think that, when he he got he developed a less and less tortured relationship with the paint. Um, I do think it's true that you know if you're painting, um, and you're you like have really thick paint, you don't have paint thinners like oils to thin mm-hmm. the paint to make it easier to spread it. Um, you the things that you will 
create are, are, are going to be influenced by the struggle that you're having with the, mm-hmm. with the thickness of the oils. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's true, but I, I also think that Soutine knew how to um, create that effect. He knew when to, when to thin the pain and when not to, he knew when to control it and when to let it, let it be a bit of a struggle. Um, and I just actually, 75% of Soutines are in private collections, but there is, there is one on view in New York right now. Um, for mm-hmm. another couple of weeks, which is from 1939. Um, and you can see that he's, the, the paint is used in such a brilliant way in such an imaginative and masterful way. Where is um, the painting on view? So people might be able to see it. Time and read on the Upper East Side. Okay, good, good. You should go see it. Everyone should go see okay. it. It's, and, so, uh, but know, but it's, while Greenberg was denouncing or not denouncing while he was, insisting that Soutine was a very limited, overly intense expressionist artist of no formal interest at all. Oh. Uh, de Kooning was, was getting turned on. By yeah. What and was and I, yeah. I think I, I don't agree that Soutine, I don't agree that, that um, de Kooning was obviously more influenced by Soray than he was by the later work. Right. I think, right. You know, if right. I actually, I, I, if you go to Chime and Read, and by the way, I don't know who, if there's a listener who can afford it, the painting is for sale, and I would love uh, to anyway, know whoever. I, anyway. yes. So if you if you go and spend time, you can see like every inch of that painting has there's something interesting going on with the paint. And if you yeah. if you zoom in and you take close detailed pictures, you can see that you can see what De Kooning saw in that. Yeah. And he would not have seen that in the earlier right. paintings. Right. There was no um, transparency. <clears throat> there were. <clears throat> Excuse me. There were no layers. There were gobs. There, there, there were was, layers, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't as creative. It was less. Yeah. It was less imaginative and less risky. And I think that mm-hmm. Greenberg is at least right that Soutine had achieved such a degree of mastery over the paint that he certainly didn't have before. Um, but you see that when I when I say one of the things that I mean when I say that there's oxygen in the painting is that there's there are things going on with different kinds of colors overlapping one another that he couldn't have done in earlier paintings where they're either all dark or all bright. Um, and yeah. you you look at that and you see de Kooning's paintings are not suffocating. De Kooning's paintings no. are expansive. They're like no. They're enormous. I mean, it's 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 like breathtaking. It's like an oceanic feeling, like well, how Freud describes relations of light. I mean, uh, and energy and yeah, yes. energy. Exactly. I, I call it intelligent energy. Mm-hmm. That is, that is the mm-hmm. phrase I used to describe both de Kooning and Soutine. Mm-hmm. And I think that really in the later ones that he gets, that gets short shrift in the Soutiniana. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that mm-hmm. that was really what de Kooning was looking at. And you're exactly right to say de Kooning in the late interview. Um, somebody asked de Kooning who his greatest artistic influence was. And he said, Soutine, mm. um, well, that's Just, very high praise. Yes, now it is. we're gonna. Now we have to come to the to the dark side because it's the twenties, it's the thirties, it's Paris, it's Europe. Um, there are terrible things happening in history and in politics. Uh, fascism is rising. Fascism eventually comes to power. Everybody knows the story. I remember one anecdote about Modigliani, who uh, apparently was always or almost always drunk, and um, about he and we were sitting in one of the cafes on Montparnasse, 
and a group of fascists were marching by. And in his wanton drunkenness, he decided to take them on and started running after them, screaming, Je suis Modigliani Juif, Je suis Modigliani Juif, which means I am Modigliani the Jew. And they just beat him up. But, um, but things were turning bad. Things were turning bad. And when one looks at the literature in French and in Yiddish about LaRouche, one of the things one notices is that a, a, a sickening number of these people we've been talking about, their death dates are always 1942 or 1943. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happened. Okay, first I, I want to say that um, I want to talk about the Jewishness of the School of Paris a little bit because I want, I want to give the listeners an understanding of how um, how comfortable these Jews felt wrongly, as it turns out, and wrenchingly All wrongly. Right. Um, so the School of Paris, most of the artists who were painting there, most of the Jewish artists, a lot of them were Jews, were not self-consciously doing like Jewish art. You mentioned Modigliani and he is, most of his stuff is not explicitly Jewish, although his first painting that he showed at the Salon um, the very first salon that he was in was called La Juive. Do you know that? Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. And he did a no. painting of Hannah Orloff that, uh, he did a drawing of Hannah Orloff that has her name, Hannah Bat Raphael, in oh, Hebrew letters. Oh, in Hebrew letters. Oh, wonderful. And, he, and so that means that he knew how to write Hebrew. But most of the artists, yeah. like Chagall is, in a, of course, a glaring exception. Yes, but most yes. of them were not there to, to create a Jewish school of art. Right. Um, and also, I, I want to also say that Matisse got a lot of flack for um, for educating members of the School of Paris because they said they they basically condemned him for educating a bunch of Jews. Um, yeah. yeah, and this was this was kind of characteristic of the anti-Semitism that those kinds of those Jews were experiencing in Paris when they first got there. They weren't being killed; they were being sneered at, um, and you know people were uncomfortable about this yeah. about these contaminants. Right. Um, but it wasn't as bad as the pogroms that they had escaped. A lot of them had escaped. Yes. All right. And then it's 1930. Um, thank God, I, I, this is kind of heartbreaking to say this, but Modi died in 1919. Yeah. Whenever I see an artist, one of these artists who died before they saw the way that Paris turned on them, this was a Paris yeah. that they loved and they thought they were a part of. Right. They didn't have to see that. Right, um, right. You know, Pascal died before, and yeah. Pascal was a really important figure in the, yeah. of the Jewish artists. He he put them in the, on the map in some ways. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's sad. It makes me sad that they had to die, but it's better than to be carted off by the neighbors they were walking by every day. Um, and if, well, and let's get to that. It's important let's... to understand. I'm sure our listeners know this that that Paris, France collaborated with the Nazis. So it wasn't it wasn't Nazi officials who were carting these Jews off to Jancy and then to Auschwitz. It was French police. Um, that's a really heartbreaking fact. This was France was one of the worst offenders in terms of collaboration with the Nazis. Yeah. They they helped well, them. They didn't Nazis didn't have to yes. do it themselves. Um, but again, and, there was there was um, occupied France. There was Paris and there was Vichy. And some of the painters thought that if they got out of Paris and got into the countryside, that they would be safer there. 
and Soutine was one yes, of them, right? Yes, and some of them. Yeah, I mean, it's astonishing to me how many of them thought that they could wait it out and that they yeah. wouldn't be taken away. Um, I have no idea what Soutine thought he was doing when it, he was in Paris in 1940. Um, finally, he got out, but he got out because his friends told him yeah. that he had to. Uh, but Soutine is an example of somebody. He had American patrons who said to him, we'll pay passage, we'll pay for passage for you to come to America. Yeah. And he said, no, he said, he said, there are no trees to paint in America, which is yeah. like, it's just ridiculous. It's crazy. And I, you said, you mentioned that he was not entirely socialized. He was very smart. Yeah. Um, after Barnes, the big acquisition, acquisition, uh, young artists would go to La Rotonde, which is where he would hang out reading Dostoevsky because they knew that he was his favorite author. They were uh -huh. hoping that he uh -huh. would, you know, strike up conversation with them. So he he was an educated man, um, and he read all of the newspapers and he listened to the radio all the time. He knew he should have known what was coming. But for some reason, he he just was another example of a person who thought, well, it'll never be me. Finally, he did, as you mentioned, um, go to the outskirts of Paris, and he was friends with a mayor who got him like found like basically barns for him to hide out in with his Catholic uh -huh. girlfriend. Um, but I had, I had mentioned earlier in the podcast. And he was he, painting even then, right? He was, but let me just say, um, yeah. he, I mentioned earlier that he had horrible stomach problems his whole life. And these got, these exacerbated terribly because of the stress. Um, he was painting even then, but he was under an enormous amount of pressure because yeah. they would have to move every couple of weeks Yeah, because people would inform on them. They yeah. would say like, well, there's a Jew hiding out in the field over there. Yeah. And finally, he one day in um, 1943, he was experiencing terrible stomach pain and he had to get to a hospital. Um, and his girlfriend, Maria Orange, didn't, who had been Max Ernst's former wife, um, she, she was adamant that he not just go to some, you know, country bumpkin hospital. He, he needed the best. And so she insisted that he go to Paris and they smuggled him into the city in a hearse. Oh, um, oh. and use this really circuitous route to, in order to get into the city. Um, and it, it took too long basically. And they were able to operate on him, but he died on the, on the operating table right afterwards. Oh. Um, so um, he's an indirect casualty. An of, indirect casualty. Yes. The, you conclude your essay <clears throat> in the most wrenching and memorable way. You conclude it with a series of portraits brief portraits of uh, painters who worked at LaRouche, uh, almost all of whom, one way or another, died in Auschwitz or were killed in the Holocaust. Yeah, um, some of them in, in Warsaw. Yeah, if, some, if right. Went back and forth. And, yeah. you know, when I, when I first got interested in, in these, these beautiful people, Again, one of the things I kept noticing is that whatever their birth date was on a lot of the death date near the parenthesis on the right, it always said 1942 or 1943, which means yeah. that they were um, consumed by the Holocaust, to be uh, both metaphorical and literal. Um, and there's a very tragic dimension. The story of the 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 noble, high-spirited, indigent Jewish painters in La Rouche ended in a very heartbreaking way. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no way to sugarcoat that. It feels tremendously unfair, and I, I confess that while writing those those last paragraphs, I mean, I I, I just 
I, I, I cried every time. I mean, trying to. You describe one of them who actually did sketches at Drancy. You have to tell us what Drancy is. Drancy was the camp where they got deported. It was. It was. I think it was in Paris, but outside the city of Paris. Yeah, yeah, to the north. Yeah, it's still there. You can visit it. Um, yeah. Oh God, it's just so upsetting because and these were these French who did this. Um, and there was a place apparently where you could buy well, drawing. Don't be that materials. surprised. Yes. Where you could dra- buy drawing materials inside the inside Drancy. In Drancy. Yeah, and he. I guess. He well, when we say it was a camp, Celeste, we should be clear. It was basically a. A, a series of apartment buildings that was used as a temporary internment camp. Yeah, they were all going yeah. to Auschwitz. I mean, they were going right. to be killed in Auschwitz. Right. It was just right. that's was where they were camp. waiting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of your painters, one of the heroes of your essay, um, you you talk about drawings he made while waiting to be deported in Drancy. Yeah, it's you can you can see them if you look them up. I think that was Feder. Um, uh-huh. Jacques Feder. Yeah. Yeah, and and they're just heartbreaking. And you can imagine what he thought he was doing. I mean, I, I yeah. can't how how he could have known that they would survive him is beyond me, but he, maybe he just took a gamble. He thought that he had to. Yeah. He had to document this. Um somebody else yeah. did the same thing in the Warsaw ghetto. There's an artist. There are yes. drawings from the Warsaw ghetto. Um, yes, yes. No, there are another number artist of from, uh, Another artist yeah. from La Ruche, I mean, not just a random. I person. see, I see, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And you can't, I can't help but be angry with, with Soutine because he died <laughs> dishonorably, you know? It's, well, it's dishonorable um, that he was, he was hiding out in the French countryside with his Catholic girlfriend because some mayor who knew him and was, you know, a happy member of his fancy circle. Um, and there were, there were members of his circle who were friends with his patron, um, Madeleine Castaigne, who were fascists and were anti-Semitic yeah. fascists. Um, they, there were, there are two people who I think they were executed for collaborating yeah, with the Nazis. Yeah, I think the writers, the writers, there was the who famous. Wrote, who wrote monographs of, of Soutine. Yeah, so people- it's, Yes, yes. Yeah. It was Drieux de la Rochelle and it was the other, oh, and the crazy satanic Maurice Sachs. Yeah. Yes, yes. And they, he would hang out with them. So it's, but people did what they could. It's true that Soutine did not show much solidarity or much courage. Um, the French countryside was studded with Jews who were hoping not to be noticed it almost never worked, or with Jews on their way to Marseille, or hoping to get to Spain in some way. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, uh, there are it's, no there are a few heroes here. But anyway, yeah, it's this, um, is, this is this is a portrait of two very different types of people. If you want to compare the way Soutine died, yeah, um, and the yeah. last paintings that he did versus the paint the the completely crushing drawings um, of Feder inside Drancy. Well, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, that's an interesting. Comp- well, I mean, yes, that's right. He never wore a yellow star. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah. he's buried underneath a cross. Anyway, anyway, I mean, I'm not. I'm. He is certainly not the the the. the yeah, he's uh, not the he's the not enemy. the villain in the story. Yeah. No, but I, I'm just. I just want to give the readers a sense of the the possibility of responses. Yes. Yes. Um, and uh, and when one visits his grave, which I think is in Montparnasse, right? Precisely. 
You have um, to really look for it because um, it, it, it says Soutine in tiny letters at the top of the grave, and then it says in big letters at the bottom, Marie Arange, who was his girlfriend. And oh, she I had see. a huge iron cross put over the grave. Um, oh. So he's buried beneath the cross there. Oh, but, well. But yeah, uh, he's, um, you know. Yeah. Um, well, company. what can I say? He was, even in his time, a painter who was compared, and in some ways rightly, to Rembrandt and whatever attempt she or others made to make him Christian or to distort him in this way or that, I think it's safe to say that he has one immortality. Uh, there is some deep way in which his art, his art triumphed. Uh, and maybe, maybe that's the place, maybe that's the place to end. Um, Thank you so much. This was really a wonderful conversation um, the material is extraordinary. I'm sure your book will be extraordinary just as you write it. Remember, you have a day job. Um, <laughs> okay, thanks, boss. Okay, thanks. Thanks for doing this, Celeste. Thank you so much for listening. I certainly hope that you enjoyed that particular conversation. My essay, The Beehive, about which we've just spoken, is available in front of the Liberties paywall on our website, libertiesjournal.com. Um, if you are not a subscriber and you would like to read that and all the other wonderful essays and the poetry that we publish after it is no longer in front of the paywall, uh, head over to libertiesjournal.com and correct that condition.